Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to another episode of New Books and Popular Music. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thanks for joining me today. Today, my guest is Stephen Roby. He's the co-author of Becoming Jimi Hendrix, From Southern Crossroads to Psychedelic London, The Untold Story of a Musical Genius, which was published by DeCapo Press in 2010. Most of us who are fans of rock music from the 60s and 70s are probably very familiar with Jimi Hendrix's career um, after his breakthrough at the Monterey Pop Festival up until his untimely death in 1970, um, thinking, of course, of albums like Are You Experienced, Electric Ladyland, and so on. But most of us, I think, uh, who fall in that category probably were less familiar with Hendrix's life before he uh, broke through into popular consciousness. And that's the great value of this book. Stephen Roby and his co-author Brad Schreiber have done a yeoman's job of unearthing what I would call the prehistory of Jimi Hendrix's musical career, stretching from the early 1960s when he is uh, dismissed from the U.S. Army up until his eventual formation of the Jimi Hendrix experience in 1966 in London. And in between uh, Roby and Schreiber do a tremendous job of showing how Jimmy's musical genius was something that was crafted over time rather than something that I think was just an overnight sensation uh, created out of his uh, his amazing chart triumph and uh, live performances that shocked everyone who saw him in the early periods there. So without further ado, I will bring us to our conversation. Hello, everyone. This is Greg Renoff, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. I am here today with the author of a great book on uh, Jimi Hendrix, which does a really fantastic job of laying out a chapter and period in Hendrix's life, which I don't think a lot of people know about, his early years before his explosive debut at Monterey Pop. And I am with uh, Stephen Roby. Thanks for joining me, Steve. Hey, thanks, Greg. It's great to be with you. I really appreciate it. Um, Well, as per our habit with new books and popular music, I'd ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how you came to write this book. Well, I was born and raised in San Francisco and started growing up uh, during what was then known as the Haight-Ashbury days uh, in the late 60s in San Francisco. It was just a wild time uh, to to be living in San Francisco. And uh, back then we had what was called underground rock radio. Uh, There was just a a handful of FM stations on the dial there. And uh, it was a big deal to have a radio station come in in stereo, and I found one at the end of the dial called KMPX, and they played full album sides and, you know, exposed me at the early age of 12 to something that I wasn't listening to on AM radio at the time. And one of those artists was the Jimi Hendrix Experience. And in fact, this station, KMPX, claimed that they were the first station in America Mm -hmm. to play the Jimi Hendrix Experience. They got an advanced copy of uh, Jimmy's uh, Hey Joe, and uh, played it, uh, what I recall, shortly after the Monterey Pop Festival, when 
most Americans had never heard of Jimi Hendrix uh, on the radio, let alone know what he looked like because he hadn't had an album out here yet. Yet he was a, a huge sensation in Europe. And uh, we were just learning about him. He came to America and played the Monterey Pop Festival and then um, came up to San Francisco, played a week at the Fillmore West and uh, became the headliner and actually uh, took it away from the Jefferson Airplane, the local group. Mm-hmm. So it was during this, this period in my life that I became an instant fan and uh, eventually saw him three times in concert, including what unfortunately turned out to be his last American performance in Honolulu, Hawaii. Uh, was a huge fan after his death and uh, started collecting bootlegs, discovered there was a network of um, collectors and fans all around the world out there, yet this was before uh, the Internet. And uh, after about 10, 20 years, I decided to put my own fan magazine together, a fanzine uh, called Straight Ahead, and distributed it monthly uh, to fans worldwide. And as the Internet came to be, uh, I decided to move on and went to work for the uh, family of Jimi Hendrix as they were putting together their organization called Experience Hendrix. was their fanzine editor for a while mm-hmm. and then decided to go off on my own and write books. And my li- latest book called Hendrix on Hendrix just came out last October. Uh, the first was Black Gold, and the one in the middle that we're going to talk about today is called Becoming Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, I... Um I should yeah, I should mention definitely that uh, Steve's new book is out, and I uh, just picked up a copy of it. It's a phenomenal compilation of uh, Hendrix's interviews and his uh, just some writings that really capture the trajectory of Hendrix's career uh, once he sort of entered the popular mainstream. And uh, yeah, and again to uh, reassert uh, the point I made when we first started about becoming Jimi Hendrix is the thing that I think is most valuable about the book that Steve and uh, his co-author Brad Schreiber wrote is that it really um, gets to periods that I think nobody knew anything about other than very, very vague um, understanding based a lot, I think, on Hendrix's own comments and uh, whatnot during these interviews that you do a good job of um, capturing in Hendrix on Hendrix, but you guys really dug deep to uh, bring this story to the surface. And that brings me to my... Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, you're, you're quite welcome. The, the question I wanted to ask it was that, um, you know, uh, I think people know about Jimmy's time in Seattle, obviously being born and raised there, and of course, his time in New York, and then his period in London. But there's a period there in the middle about Nashville, Tennessee, uh, in the early 60s, 62 to 63, that's, uh, I think was, if I'm reading the book properly, pretty formative in Jimmy's life. Could you talk a little bit about his musical experiences there? Hey, absolutely, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> let me backtrack a little bit, though. I spent four years of <clears throat> excuse me, uh, research and gathering research information, reading tons of books, articles, finding people that had been overlooked in previous books. Uh, Jimmy's R&B period, if you will, the years from 62 to 66, always fascinated me. There's several recordings out there, and what most people want to concentrate on are his uh, popular years, 67, 66 through uh, 70, when he had his most hits and, you know, psychedelic rock music out. But... For me, as a longtime archivist, a historian, um, author, and I even teach a class on Jimi Hendrix, mm-hmm. it was important to me to discover where Jimmy's musical roots came from. And that's the focus of this book, Becoming Jimi Hendrix. And so um, the book starts, you know, gives a brief background of how, you know, rough Jimmy's childhood years were in Seattle and why he left. 
Seattle in the first place. I mean, he's busted twice for jury writing, and it came down to a decision by a judge to either get your life together, young Mr. Hendricks, or spend you know, years in jail if you keep on this course of uh, breaking the law. So Jimmy decided to join the Army. But, you know, he had grand ambitions when he joined the Army to be a uh, paratrooper, and he did eventually get the um, Screaming Eagle patch for the 101st Airborne. But after his father sent him his guitar at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, his Jimmy's... Uh, focus really went uh, from being a paratrooper to being a musician and wanting to be a serious musician. He started uh, spending time uh, with his fellow friend and bass player, Billy Cox, and they would do uh, weekend gigs uh, not too far off the base there. And eventually, Jimmy kind of figured a way to get out of the Army. You know, he was, if you read some of the um, testimony from uh, some of the, his fellow officers, he was showing up late, he was sleeping in too late, mm-hmm. falling asleep on the job. But he eventually got out and waited for his friend Billy Cox to get out of uh, the Army. And they went to Nashville. And Nashville, you know, I'm sure as you know, and your listeners know too, it was just a, a popping scene of mostly country music. But there was, uh, you know, a good deal of R&B going on there, and it was just really a good uh, central point for Jimmy to start his musical career. And uh, they formed a band called the King Casuals and started gigging, eventually hooked up with um, a promoter who took him on a Sam Cooke Sam Cook tour with, um, with other artists, and Jimmy just learned his chops. I mean, it, uh, it was just a really formative period, and, and the book goes into uh, going on to eventually New York City. Yeah, and uh, the other incident that I think that that happens in, in Nashville that connects uh, Hendrix's life with uh, a historical period that I'm particularly interested in is the civil rights movement. Is that um, Jimmy was actually arrested? Was it he not? Right. Uh, you know, Jimmy talked about it briefly in an interview, which was, which sparked my interest. Is that they would on Sundays they would go down and watch these uh, protests that were going on, and uh, I started looking into uh, a lot of newspaper archives, and I, I discovered that, uh, that it was quite a heavy scene back then. And uh, Jimmy got very frustrated with what was going on, and he and Billy Cox, his bass player, uh, went to one of these protests and got arrested. And luckily enough, the uh, one of the club owners who had the group booked there bailed them out. Uh, but he, Jimmy told his father about what was going on, and his father probably wrote back and said, you know, son, you're doing the right thing. I'm glad you stood up for what you feel is, is right. Wow, wow. And um, the thing that I had always understood about Hendrix before I wrote this book was that Jimmy tried to stay somewhat apolitical when it came to civil rights. And that may not be your understanding based on your own research. And I'd be interested to hear what your takeaway is now, um, knowing about the, the death of Martin Luther King and Jimmy's performance that night. And then later, if I remember correctly, that Jimmy was um, approached by the Black Panthers and pressured to take more activist positions. And he really wasn't interested in doing that. Well, yes and no. Um, up until 1968, Jimmy was rather passive on um, being outspoken about that, whether it was his uh, own choice or his management's choice. I mean, management basically wanted them to tie into the psychedelic ballroom scene at the time and, you know, uh, talk about love and music and, and all the things that were going on with the, the hippie scene at the time there. But as you know, uh, 
the political scene really changed in 1968 with the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr., uh, Bobby Kennedy, uh, take for instance uh, the Black Power Movement uh, salute at the uh, 1968 Olympics where two African-American athletes uh, who won medals uh, stood up and uh, gave the Black Power salute with the black gloves on. And there's an interesting article uh, interview that Jimmy did in uh, 68 for a magazine called Teen Set, but it's really his most um, political statement ever about, you know, supporting the Black Panthers. And it's in uh, my book, Hendrix on Hendrix, where he says that, uh, you know, he's, you could tell Jimmy is frustrated with the, uh, the climate at that time and says that, you know, um, it's up to the Black Panthers uh, not to really start a revolution, but to take some sort of stance to scare the government. Mm-hmm. and cause something like that. You know, he says you have to fight fire with fire. And this totally contradicts what Hendrix's stance was at that point. And I think it came back to bite him a little bit because <clears throat> so one of his girlfriends, Kathy Etchingham, said that they were just hounded by the Black Panthers coming to their door saying, you know, will you support us further? And, uh, you know, Jimmy was kind of in the middle because his music was not being played on black radio. Uh, You know, the psychedelic rock just didn't fit in with Marvin Gaye, uh, The Four Tops, The Temptations. So there was kind of a struggle for him because he really wanted to reach back into the community, into the roots where he came from. But he was kind of surrounded by two white guys and eventually uh, started the Band of Gypsies with back again with Billy Cox and uh, a good friend, uh, drummer Buddy Miles. Yeah, and you know, that just uh, popped something else into my head. What's really interesting is that, of course, um, Hendrix is brought to the American scene, as you said, with these two Afroed white boys behind him, and um, that's the Jimi Hendrix experience, which makes him an international superstar. And when he turns to... Um, to uh, the band of gypsies, of course, he's returning back to his roots, really, with working with Billy Cox. Exactly. Uh, in fact, uh, he, he, Billy, uh, Jimmy got the idea because he's really getting fed up with his uh, current bass player at the time, Noel Redding, from the Jimi Hendrix Experience. And Noel was fed up, too. Noel really wanted to be a guitar player, but got you know, the opportunity to, be a, a, to learn bass and join the Jimi Hendrix Experience in 66 and, you know, and have a chance at fame, which happened. But Noel wanted out of the group, wanted to start his own group, Fat Mattress. Uh, Jimmy wanted more of an earth, earthier, solid sound and that he found with his friend, uh, Billy Cox, and so Billy Cox and Jimmy started doing private sessions together, and Buddy Miles had jammed with Jimmy uh, throughout the years. In fact, Buddy Miles had met Jimmy during that Chitlin Circuit period when Jimmy right. was playing with the Heisler Brothers. So uh, management really wasn't for it, and they really kind of put a quick end to the Band of Gypsies, but it was his first attempt at uh, doing this power funk trio you know, by three all-African-American players. Right. The um, yeah, and to, to continue along that line of thought about the Chitlin Circuit is that um, he, the thing that always was uh, leaping out at me every page I read in your book is that Jimmy really apprenticed with the best of the best when it comes to his time uh, before he becomes a superstar. Um, I'd let you, you, of course, riff on any of these individuals. That'd be I think our listeners would love to hear about his time with Little Richard or the Isley Brothers. Um, just, uh, I know he played one gig with Wilson Pickett. I mean, he really, for all of his, uh, for all of his time, uh, out of the spotlight managed to sort of be right next to the spotlight. 
Exactly. Um, well, you know, let's let's back it up just a little bit uh, further. I mean, as a kid, Jimmy was was drawing pictures of like Elvis, you know, some of his early um, inspirations and influences, and he really <laughs> talk about somebody that never gives up and is so determined to become a not only a musician but a famous musician he uh w- once he started playing with these groups like the Isley brothers and especially little richard who liked his style of playing and saw that jimmy had a star but the problem he had with each of these groups here i mean he could play the rhythm guitar p- parts right but jimmy wanted to do a little extra you know uh, some soloing some feedback you know early feedback experimentation but these r&b groups just didn't have wild guitar solos in them. And so that was the frustrating part. Jimmy would would join these groups, uh, you know, play the gigs for a while. And you also have to understand, too, is that they had strict dress codes. I mean, they had to wear uh, patent leather shoes. Uh, one person I interviewed said they had to be so shiny that you had to <clears throat> see your face in the shoe. Wow. And if you couldn't, the band leader said, if I couldn't see your face in, 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 my, in your shoe there, that you were fined, and Jimmy was constantly being fined for being out of not following the, the strict dress codes, uh, showing up late, uh, wearing ruffled shirts uh, when everybody had just starched, you know, stiff white shirts. So it was it was a fun learning time, uh, and eventually, um, you know, after playing with Little Richard, the Isley Brothers, and even King Curtis, uh, right. the great sax player. Uh, you know, he just uh, he just couldn't conform right. to these these tight, strict rules. Right. Um, and uh, one thing too in the, in the book that I really enjoyed was the uh, discussion of Little Richard, um, one of the uh, the my co-host Matt, who does the series with me, has done an interview with an author who did a book on Little Richard, and I uh, really enjoyed uh, hearing about Richard's personality. And uh, yet, he and Jimmy, uh, you know, who seemed to be, uh, you know, maybe. Uh, a, a two that would immediately, you know, with Little Richard's personality, he would have immediately dumped Hendrix. He kept him for a while, and it looks like to me that Jimmy maybe took some things from uh, Little Richard. W- could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, um, well, even Jimmy kind of pays a little uh, respect to, to Little Richard in some of the interviews, saying he wanted to do with his guitar what Little Richard did with his voice. Right. But Little Richard became such a cliche that he was so mockable uh, right. when he was doing his, his standard routines that, you know, Jimmy being the prankster that he was, you know, would get the other members to kind of like, you know, you know, do something odd to, uh, <laughs> to, to upset Richard, which was easy to do. There's a, a great incident that occurs in the book. And one, if the book ever is made into a proper movie that I would love to see uh, acted out well. Uh, let me set the stage for you real quick here. Uh, Little Richard and Jimmy, of course, and the band are on a huge bill at the Paramount Theater in New York City. Uh, it's a soupy sales gig. The comedian soupy sales who had a TV right. show back then where he was always getting hitting in the face with a pie. Sure. Uh, was on the bill with uh, the, all these other bands, and each band got to play maybe 10, 15 minutes, two, three songs at the most, and they would show a movie. And so it was a, a tight gig and they would do two shows a day like a, a matinee show and, and an early uh, evening show you know so the kids could go home and have dinner so uh, little Richard got really upset you know that you know that uh, all these teenage girls were screaming for what he thought were, was for him but uh, in fact um, you know he was blowing out his ego quite a bit there but anyway um, 
little Richard gets fired uh, after being warned several times uh, that he's just gone over the bill and he's just, you know, they toss him off the bill. So little Richard starts to have a meltdown backstage when he gets the news that he's been canned and Jimmy's there and very odd coincidence that, you know, the animals, which were part of the British invasion at that time, Eric Burden and Chaz Chandler, Jimmy's future manager, go to see uh, Little Richard and the others perform that day, the day that uh, Little Richard gets fired. Mm-hmm. And backstage, there's a freight elevator. And in the elevator are Jimmy, Little Richard, uh, Eric Burden, and Chaz Chandler. And Little Richard loses it. He starts freaking out. There's a security guard in the elevator, and uh, when Little Richard just starts to explode, the secured, the burly security guard grabs his gun, puts it under Little Richard's chin to calm him down. Hendrix has to subdue Little Richard wow. and get him in, almost in a chokehold. And Chaz Chandler and Eric Burden are witness to this all. And uh, this, as the story goes. Uh, Little, I mean, uh, Jimmy and Chas Chandler get off at one of the floors there and decide to step aside and have a smoke and talk about music. But little did each one of them know that this was the first time that they'd met, that within about a year from that date, uh, Chas Chandler would be managing Jimmy when they meet at the Cafe Gogo, I'm sorry, the Cafe Wall in New York City. Yeah, it's it's uh, <laughs> the the thing that pops into my mind is that uh, being in such a confined space with little Richard going crazy in a freight elevator, uh, it might have been a little bit that put anybody over the edge if it was a slow a slow elevator. Um, yeah. you, you know, one more question I wanted to bounce off you before we hear about your current and future projects is um, J- Jimmy's lyrical uh, inspirations. I, th- I think for me. I, uh, as a music fan, you immediately think of Jimmy's amazing guitar playing. I think that's what most people think about when they think about Jimi Hendrix, but really his, his lyrics, Castle Made of Sand, and we can go through all of the other great Hendrix compositions, Purple Haze. Um, can you talk about what you uncovered in the book about where Jimmy may have drew upon for his uh, his great lyrics? Boy, that's, that's, a, that's a really good question. And, uh, God, he was such... Um a fan of science fiction um, books. In fact, when I interviewed uh, Kim Sally, uh, who talked about meeting Jimmy for the first time just shortly after he arrived in England, that Jimmy had with him or purchased when he was over there about 50 books on science fiction. Wow. And he kept in what uh, Kim Fowley called a, a seaman's chest, a uh, big wooden chest. And uh, there was Ray ba- Bradbury in there, mm-hmm. Jose Philip uh, Farmer, who Jimmy um, kind of borrowed an idea uh, about uh, a purple haze uh, on this planet, Dante's and uh, Dante, I forget what the name of the planet was. But mm-hmm. anyway, uh, so Jimmy was really heavily into science fiction. In fact, um, there's a podcast on my YouTube channel where um, I discovered there was a, a Twilight Zone called Third from the Sun. And I'm sure Jimmy must have seen that episode. Mm-hmm. So there was, there's a great, uh, great influence of science fiction uh, songs and themes that, that come throughout Jimmy's popular career. Uh, in fact, uh, Lithophane Pridgen, who Jimmy met in Harlem in New York City during this early time frame, uh, collaborates this. And uh, one of the songs that Jimmy wrote during that time frame period, and she could recite the lyrics to me, uh, was called Next Planet, Please. Mm. And uh, that I, I thought that was such a great title. I used that for one of the chapters in Becoming Jimi Hendrix. Yeah, it sounds like he was really a, 
including it being a voracious consumer of music. Obviously, uh, he was a voracious consumer of uh, science fiction and comic books, which is, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that sort of, of course, would uh, will uh, dovetail very, very nicely when the psychedelic era hits. Jimmy's read all these comic books, and then it's sort of that becomes great grist for the mill for all of the uh, interstellar or, or outer stellar explorations people want to do with LSD and other uh, other intoxicants. Exactly. So, Steve, um, I know we are running short on time here. So, would you mind sharing with us what your uh, current projects are? I know Hendrix on Hendrix is out. Uh, what, what's in the future for you in terms of your next book? You know, it's um, it's funny. Something always happens. I say I'm going to take a break from uh, from Jimi Hendrix, and then something else comes along and just inspires me to to follow it. Currently, <clears throat> I'm working with a um, a group up in Seattle uh, called the. Uh, North Northwest Folk Life uh, Organization, and we're putting together a three-hour uh, Jimi Hendrix tribute concert that'll take place on May 25th in Seattle at the Experience Music Project uh, Sky Church Auditorium. Mm. And uh, we're still in the early stages here, but I'm working on uh, what the groups are going to perform, how the songs will lay out. But basically, we've divided it into six chapters, if you will, six parts of Jimmy's life, and. Uh, there will be groups, I think about 12 groups now, that will play certain songs from each kind of time frame of Jimmy's life. We'll have um, uh, footage playing in the background, kind of doing a slideshow to get uh, the audience to kind of really appreciate, you know, Jimmy's growth and development and uh, perhaps conclude the um, the performance with, uh, like, Angel or something along that lines there. But we're... we're fine-tuning it right now and uh it should really come together on may 25th isn't it amazing 40 years after his death there's just no no end to the uh the interest in jimmy the new album that's come out from the uh hendrix family and i just uh i just can't help but remark that uh he's going to go down as one of the great artists of the 20th century yeah i had no idea you know as a, as a 12 year old uh that uh, in my 50s, <laughs> I would still be listening to his music, and there would still be enough music around to enjoy. Right. Do, do you ever uh, get questions from people that, you know, will you ever get tired of Jimi Hendrix? Oh, all the time. <laughs> or, or the one that I dislike the most is, what is your favorite Jimi Hendrix song? Sure, sure. <laughs> like sure. you could put it down to one. <laughs> sure. Hey, Steve, have a great day. Thank you so much for your time, and I hope to speak to you again soon. Okay. Thanks, Thanks a lot. Bye. You've been listening to a conversation with Stephen Roby about his book, Becoming Jimi Hendrix, which was published by DeCapo Press in 2010. Please check back with new books and popular music or subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss a podcast. I'm your host, Greg Renoff. Thanks for listening.